Hi, welcome to BCI Cattle Chat. I'm Brad White. Happy to have you with us today and happy to have our crew here in the studio. Good morning, Brian. Good morning, Brad. Bob. Good morning. And Philip. Hey, Brad. So we've got a, a great program today. We're going to talk about several things, including some lamenesses in the cow-calf herd. What might we expect to see as we go through summer? And then we had a great listener question on uh, what are some of the factors that might influence birth weight? And then we'll do a research roundup with one of our grad students, Rachel Brown, who's done some interesting work on liver abscesses and tying that into gut health with Philip. So interested to hear from her on some of the things that she's found from her early work. Before we get into those topics, it's the we're coming right up on Memorial Day weekend. So I wanted to ask what you guys have planned for the big weekend. Brian? We will be at a baseball tournament somewhere, Brad. I, <laughs> I don't know uh, where right now, but... Um, so, that's- so this is it. Normal weekend. Then. That's, yeah, March through July. Yep. <laughs> Philip? I don't know if I, what I have planned exactly at the moment. Probably get the grill out and maybe grill some steaks. And I don't know, the boys and I might go camping or something like that. But don't have any definite plans at the moment. Excellent. Well, I'm in for the grill and just tell me what time you'd like me to come over. <laughs> and I'll, I'll come help with the steaks. Bob, you have big plans. Yeah, I'm pretty sure my schedule is packed. Uh, I've got a, a daughter getting married on Memorial Day weekend, and so I've got to work on my dance moves. I got to get my speech all figured out. I got, yeah, I got a lot of responsibility. Are you going to do the dad daughter dance? Yeah. We and are. what are, what's your song? She's going to surprise me. But how are you going to prepare your dance moves if you don't know? Do you know? Is it upbeat? Is pretty it sure slow? It's rap. <laughs> pretty sure. Well, this I gotta see. Yeah. <laughs> we gotta get a video of this. There's gonna be YouTube. Put it on the YouTube channel. <laughs> so what what kind of prep is involved for you as you get ready? Well, for so a I, this is. I'm starting to maybe suspect my wife had ulterior motives. So she gave me a couple of big assignments, and they all involved me going outside and spending weeks in my shop away from the house where all the wedding planning was taking place. So I I was in charge of making some centerpieces and like an arbor thing that they're going to stand behind and all this kind of stuff. So I've been out in my shop blissfully unaware of everything happening in the house. That's awesome. Yeah. So it's it, kind of a win-win, I think. Yeah. I think everybody's happy with that scenario. Well, hopefully all goes well and we look forward to the videos of you busting a move there you at go. the wedding. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you're not going to be able to dance if you're lame. So let's talk a little bit about lameness in, because as we come into summer, and I'm going to preface this with, we've talked talked previously about foot rot in adults. So I don't want to address foot rot because not everything's foot rot. But tell me, what are some of the other lamenesses that we might see in the cow-calf herd, Brian? Well, I'm going to take this approach. So whenever you have lameness, I think it's worth a call to a veterinarian. Even if it looks like any, you know, if it looks like t- typical foot rot and you've got a relationship with a veterinarian and they've set up a protocol to treat foot rot this way, maybe it's not responding. So I would say before you call your veterinarian, there's a couple things. If you were calling me, I'd want to know. First question is, is it one animal or is it multiple animals, right? Because that changes what I think might be going on. The other question I want to know is where is the cow lame? And that is, is it a front foot? Is it a back foot? But really what I want to know is what, is it the lower leg or is it higher up in the leg? Because if you can tell me those two pieces of information, I've got a much different approach going out and it might actually change what I do or bring with me. So it might be a, yeah, I want to do an exam um, that I can kind of do from a distance, or it might be something where, hey, this might be a case where I need a tilt shoot and we're going to have to get this animal up and look at the bottom side of the foot. So to answer your question though, lots of things cause labor. So it could be a bacterial infection in the joint. It could be an injury. It could be, most of the lameness will be in the foot. 
So especially with the drought conditions being dry, the hoof wall integrity is not the same as it normally is. So you might see cracks, you might see white line disease, you could see sole abscesses, you could see foreign body, so nails, wires, all that kind of stuff. So any and all of that. And that's why those two important questions are really important. So I want to go on a brief divergence here, Brian, because you mentioned call your vet, have a relationship with the vet. Probably pretty important as we come into June, guidance 213 is going to come into effect. And some of the drugs that we might use to treat lameness or foot rot will now no longer be over the counter. They're going to have to be under a prescription with your vet. Is that accurate? Is there anything else you want to remind folks about that guidance 213? What do I need? Yeah. So the way this is working is the manufacturers are changing the labels and it just removes the over the counter and it puts the prescription, what we call prescription legend, which says that you requires a prescription. And so it's the same, you know, have that relationship with your veterinarian. You don't have to purchase the antibiotics from the vet. You can, they can write you a script. You can fill it through a distributor. You can, however you normally acquire that, you'll still be able to do that, but you still have to have that piece of, of paper. And many of the things we just talked about that do cause lameness could require antibiotic therapy. So you're right. That's an important piece to have. And that, again, that's why I start with when you have a clinical case of lameness, start with your veterinarian and figure out what's going on and then how to move forward with that. Okay. And Bob, Brian mentioned a couple things, white line disease or soul problems. What are some of those things and what do we see as the effect of those or cracked hooves was the other he mentioned? Mm-hmm. Well, in some of those, the lameness can be quite severe because it can be quite painful. So you think about a lot of these are in the foot. Now, Foot rot is very common, and what's nice about foot rot is a lot of those respond really well to one treatment with antibiotics, and they get better. That's what we like about that. But the problem is everything else he mentioned, like a white line disease, which is you'd have to look at the bottom of the foot, kind of where the the hoof wall is meeting the more tender part of the hoof. That's you're gonna have to pick up the foot and actually look at the bottom and do some, you know, using some hoof tools to actually fix that if it's an abscess on the bottom of the foot. Those are things that you can't just fix with antibiotics. They're going to have to cut the foot and actually do some hoof work. So that's where the veterinarian has, you know, hoof knives, hoof testers. It's a big deal when you get down in there dealing with hoof problems that aren't foot rot. And a lot of times you may need to bring those into a facility where you can flip them up, flip them on their side, a tilt table, something where you can really have access because depending on the depth that you have to do it, and you guys are right, a lot of the stuff lower in the leg, the stuff that's upper in the leg that happens and it does happen, but a lot of it is not good. Yeah. Yeah. The good thing about that. So if you have, you know, you think about football players, that get torn cruciates and things like that. Well, cows and bulls particularly can get that. The problem is there's almost nothing you can do about that, practically speaking. So most of our problems are down in the foot. Foot rot is relatively easy and usually successful to treat. Some of these other things are usually successful but more difficult to treat. And then anything above the hoof becomes difficult and unlikely to be successful. So just all things lameness range from not that bad to kind of a pain to really bad. Yeah. So Philip, when we think about sometimes the vitamin mineral side, are there any things there that contribute to hoof health and overall prevention of lameness? Yeah. So we want to make sure that we have a good mineral nutrition program to to make sure that animal is getting the nutrients it needs to synthesize the keratin to maintain good hoof health. So zinc is an important one. From a vitamin perspective, there is a little bit of work out there that indicates in dairy cows that biotin, which is a B vitamin that we normally don't worry about, 
could be beneficial, but probably not an issue in the beef cow world because just a, a high forage type of diet and we're not pushing those cows as hard as they are in a dairy situation. Yeah, I think, you know, we've seen some situations where a herd maybe has some antagonists or something like that with copper where you'll even see some hoof lesions and zinc is another one. So those aren't the common problems. The common problems are the footing, the, you know, things that'll cause sole abscesses, really dry conditions where you can get these sand cracks and things like that. But nutrition is still important and just overall cattle health is really important to allow these cattle to bounce back. And then I'll go back to, you know, one of the first questions I mentioned was how many cows are affected? And so usually when you have these nutritional environmental interactions going on, it's not just one animal, right? And so that is kind of a key off that a, a large chunk of the herd is involved and we're seeing lameness in many, many animals. That'd probably be one of the first places I would start to think about is, okay, what's going on that's affecting everybody? Great differentiation, Brian. So if it's a, a cow, it's way different than if it's five or six cows that are having the same issue and the things that we'd want to look into. Yep. I wanted to get to our listener question. And I think a really good question that the herd is starting a purebred operation. They moved some cows from an arid region to a region that has a little higher forage base. And their question was, we're seeing a lot of variability in birth weights. So I wanted to maybe broaden that a little bit. And the question was, is that because they moved from an arid region to a more lush region? So the question for you guys is, what are the things that influences birth weight? Brian, I'm going to start with you. Well, I guess I'll pick one. Gender affects birth weight, right? And so we expect bull calves are typically going to weigh more than heifer calves. And so, and especially when we talk about the range of weights that this listener question mentioned, it, it's possible. I, I mean, I imagine they probably picked that up a little bit, but bull calves are going to be a little heavier. So if you have a disproportionately large number of bulls, you're going to see higher average birth weights in your calf crop. 75 to 120 range, yeah. something yeah. like that. Yeah. Bob? Well, and, and genetics does have a pretty big role to play in birth weight. I think the geneticists would say, you know, 45% or so of the variability in birth weight can be explained by the genetic differences. And you got to think about both the bull and the genetics of the bull and what uh, is he a high birth? Does he tend to have high birth weight offspring or low birth weight offspring? But the cow also. And so when you think about some of the variability in a herd, depending on the herd size, you've got a handful of bulls, but then you have all the cows and their genetic diversity. So you're going to get a pretty wide diversity in what the genetic input is to birth weight. And that will provide both an indication of why there's so much variability. You're never going to get rid of that when you've got all the genetics of a group of cows thrown together. But also, if it's too high, one of our tools is to put some selection pressure on birth weight or calving ease is probably more important. Uh, calving ease is often what we think about with birth weight, but birth weight is associated with some of the things down the road like weaning weight and yearling weight. What about the role of nutrition here, Philip? Nutrition can have actually a pretty large impact in birth weight, you know, within similar genetics. So the nutrition of the dam in late gestation when most of the fetal growth is occurring can make a difference in how large that calf is at birth. And there are some things from a perspective of just how many nutrients are being supplied to that cow. So a kind of a, a good example, or to that calf, sorry. A good example of that is calves born in the fall typically have lighter birth weights than calves born in the spring. And that can be, I've seen in, in a herd of similar genetics, that can be a 10 pound difference on the average. 
And so the thought process is that the, the heat stress in summertime is causing that cow to move blood to extremities to dissipate heat. And so you've got less blood flow and less nutrients directly going to the fetus. And she may be eating a little bit less too because of the heat stress. And so there's just fewer nutrients getting to the calf. And so then the growth is just not as much in that fall calf. And so we can do the same thing in other situations. We can have effects, maybe not at birth, but even further down the road of cows that are restricted in vitamins and minerals and protein in late gestation. And so if you think about spring calving cows on dormant winter forage, and they're not getting enough protein, then that has a long-term effects on the performance of the offspring. It may affect birth weight, it may not, but it can affect that calf in weaning weight, carcass quality, feedlot performance, lots of different things. So would you expect in this scenario where they moved from arid to more lush region that that would have influenced the variability as well? So you talked about the the regular the rate or the level of birth weight. What about the variability? You know, that's tough. I don't know how to make a strong connection between the nutrition and the variability other than just having some cows that may have responded differently to having more lush pasture and more nutrients available. And so maybe that restrictive environment in the Southwest made a tight genetic group, but now that you've got a better nutritional environment, you created a much broader or wider variation in the genetic potential of that group of cows. I guess one kind of piece of information I think we're it doesn't say when the cows were moved between the two environments as far as, as what stage of gestation. And so, you know, if it was very, very late gestation, I think probably minimal at that point, but effect, as far as affecting birth weight, but if, you know, these were cows that were early gestation, yeah, maybe there was a little more influence in that move and maybe that did contribute to variability, but that's, I mean, that's kind of a guess. Yeah, good point. Lots of things and contribute to birth weight and that variability. We talked about nutrition, calf gender, time of year, fall versus spring. And then, of course, the variability, which Bob described is about 0.45 or 45% we'd expect. So that means it's not just any one of those things to combine for that birth weight, which leads us to some of that variation that we see. Rachel Brown is here with us. And, and Rachel, we're glad to have you with us. Rachel is working on her master's with Dr. Lancaster as well as going through veterinary school. In fact, we're in the midst of finals week. So I appreciate you joining us during finals week to talk us some about your research because you had a great summer last summer. You're preparing for this summer. Tell us a little bit about some of the research you did last summer. Yeah, thanks for having me. So I was part of the necropsy project last summer, just doing necropsies at feed yards. And my part of the study, we were looking at liver abscess cases that we found and trying to find correlations and associations in those cases with the formation of the abscesses. So we took some histopath tissue samples from those cases to look at later and then also looked at historical factors like days on feed and breed and sex and all those things and then any gross necropsy findings as well. So, Philip, one of the things that you've done in guiding this research is, as Rachel mentioned, we're looking at whether liver abscesses were there or not in feedlot cattle at different times on feed, days on feed. And she took some samples, looked at them under the microscope to kind of look at some of those minute changes in the gut. Anything else that we're missing in that overview? And 
what did you guys find? Well, I think uh, some of the interesting questions we tried to ask were, when are these abscesses forming during the feeding period? We don't have a good handle on that. And if we could figure out when they're forming, we could make some management changes. We could maybe reduce the use of tylosin in the feed, reduce our antibiotic use by using it at a more specific time, things like that. And so, and, and then we're trying to figure out, is there nutritional factors that are affecting gut health that are allowing those bacteria to cross? the gut barrier and get into the liver. So, so what did you find with some of your days on feed and, and some of those demographic type of facts? So in the cattle we looked at, we didn't find any associations with days on feed. Most of them were happening later in the feeding period, just on a numbers perspective. But then when we looked at it more in the analysis, there wasn't a significant association between days on feed there. The main thing that we found that was associated was sex, and we found them more prevalent in steers than in heifers but none of the other factors we looked at were associated with there being liver abscesses or no liver abscesses in a case. So the the days on feed wasn't as big a factor as maybe we thought, but did you find as many liver abscesses in those necropsied cattle as you would expect by the time cattle get to harvest? Yeah, so we actually were pretty surprised. We were expecting from previous um, literature, we expected 10 to 20%, over 20% of the cases to have abscesses, but we only found about 7% of our cases had abscesses at all. Oh, so quite a bit lower than maybe what we'd expect. Mm -hmm. Now, in those cases that had abscesses, did you see lesions in the rumen or in the GI tract? Could you visually see a lot of lesions associated with those abscesses? Right, so we evaluated GI pathology and lesions in all the cases. And at a gross level, we didn't see, we only saw one case that had concurrent liver abscesses and GI lesions. So, so and then you took to under the microscope. And right. what, did, what did you see then? Right. So we put some of those tissue samples on slides and looked at them microscopically. And we found a few differences with rumen thickness. So the cases with liver abscess had thinner layers of the rumen cellularly than cases without liver abscesses. But we're still digging into that data. Interesting that we didn't see anything grossly because that's not what's been reported, Phil. No, what's been reported is that kind of the path, normal pathology is we see ruminitis disrupts that uh, rumen epithelial barrier. And and then that lets the bacteria cross the rumen wall and get into the portal circulation and then set up for an infection in the liver. And so we were really surprised that we did not see any association between ruminitis or any rumen lesions and liver abscess cases. So two surprises here. One, Rachel, you mentioned a lower level of liver abscesses than we might have expected. And two, we didn't see a lot of gross lesions associated with those. But this is some of the first work that's really documenting it not at harvest, right? We're documenting mm -hmm. it as those cattle are at different stages of the feeding phase. So what's on your agenda for this summer? Yeah, so this summer we're digging a little more into the liver abscess and management of liver abscesses. Like you said, we don't know a lot about them during the feeding period, so we're looking more into management techniques and specifically some beef on dairy work and back even farther past the feedlot, maybe into calf ranches and management techniques there too. Well, and, and I think that's an important point, Rachel, because you guys said the prevalence of liver abscesses in feeder calves was lower than you expected, but it wasn't zero, right? Mm -hmm. So it, it is possible there's some level of pathology that's happening even before they get to the feed yard. And as far as I know, there's hardly any evidence, any research that's gone back and looked at that. We all kind of always just associate this as a feed yard disease. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's something important to follow up on. Additionally, talking about the gut health and Philip, this is an area that you've had a lot of interest in. And some of the things Rachel did 
interesting that the microscopic did not align with what we saw grossly. What's your take on that? You know, I'm not sure. You know, there wasn't necessarily a clinical pathology there that was in that rumen tissue, but we just had thinner epithelial layers. And so we don't really know why. You know, is that a genetic component to this? And so that those that have thinner epithelial layers that are more prone to liver abscess? Or is it something with the feeding management and just their intake and diet that they're on, things like that. So we want to dig more into that and try to understand that better. Well, and I think, and you mentioned it too, that it might not just be the rumen. You know, we've always kind of thought this is a rumen disease that leads to liver abscesses, but I think we're learning more about the entire GI tract of cattle and there might be other places or other sources for those bacteria that lead to that eventual liver abscess. Well, I think we're going to dig into that. Rachel did some stuff looking at the colon. Didn't find anything really there as far as the epithelium of the colon, but we're going to dig into that colon area more than in this summer's project and try to learn a little bit more about what might be going on there associated with these liver abscesses. Excellent. And I think great point in these observational type research projects or surveys like Rachel has done. It's hard to conclude cause and effect. We're just trying to figure out what's what's out there in the population. Rachel, you've done a fantastic job with that. She's actually got a couple abstracts published on this and is working on a paper. We look forward to see the follow-up from your work from this summer. Thanks, Rachel, for joining us. Thanks so much. And thanks for listening today. As always, if you have questions, comments, feedback for us, you can send us an email at bci at ksu.edu.